Welcome to the New York Startup. I'm Zach Firestone, and I chat with founders, investors, and other key players in the startup ecosystem. You can find us at thenewyorkstartup.com or on Twitter at VNY Startup. I am totally stoked to have Charlie O'Donnell on the show today. Charlie is the sole partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures, a very well-known VC and the first in Brooklyn, which invests in New York-based startups at the seed and pre-seed rounds. Prior to founding his own firm, Charlie has worked in ventures since 2001, including on the original team at Union Square Ventures, at First Round Capital, and even at the GM Pension Fund, one of the most active institutional LPs in the industry. He's received countless awards, writes a leading blog and newsletter, and even founded the Brooklyn Bridge Park Boathouse, a very popular free kayaking and rowing program for the community. Charlie also offered major encouragement around launching this podcast. So thanks for that. And it's really great to have you on today, Charlie. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. So you've really been a career VC. What can you share about that journey? How did you get into venture, you know, beginning on the LP side at GM and then eventually at two top tier VCs? It is somewhat rare that people start their career in the asset class, but I was actually an intern all throughout college, actually starting at my senior year of high school. And this subsidiary had been an investor across private equity, really, uh, buyouts, mezzanine, distressed debt venture for over 30 40 years. And so um, they go back to investing in ventures since like the late 70s, if I remember correctly. And so the, the one group that I actually hadn't worked with was the venture capital and private equity group. And it was, so it was my first job coming out of college. And I started working with them in February of 2001. And I think that formative experience gives me a very different perspective than a lot of other VCs. I think I'm more of sort of a portfolio thinker, and I like to think about risk and risk taking in a very strategic way. So, you know, some VCs come at it from a perspective of an operator and they'll come in and they'll tell you, you know, their experience and how they think it applies to your company and, and other VCs come from maybe a banking or financial background and they're more, they're, they're deal people or, you know, it's all about the next deal and, and you know, an individual company and, and, and figuring that stuff out. But, but I'm more of a portfolio thinker and I think it enables me actually to take some more risk because I always think about, you know, the amount of risk I'm taking in this one company. If I did this similar kind of bet 20 or 30 times, how do I think the portfolio would perform? And sometimes you can very easily get wrapped around the axle in terms of, well, you know, is this particular thing going to work out? What do I think of this particular founder? And the reality is there's just a lot of uncertainty when you look at one particular company. So when you look at it across the board and you say, hey, there's a certain limit to my knowledge going into this, but given all the rest of this criteria, you know, big market, smart founder, you know, product I believe in, all of this sort of stuff, like this kind of bet is generally a good bet when done across a whole portfolio. So it, it makes me get less caught up, I think, in, in the risk around any one particular deal. I, I think the other thing is it probably enables me to kind of look through certain types of risk that maybe other VCs won't take. You know, so for example, like pre-product risk, I've backed a lot of companies before they've launched their product. And look, the reality is most people who aim to build a product actually build that product. Very few people did not even get to product number one or version number one. 
Now, whether that scales or, you know, uh, whether or not they're able to find a market for said product is a whole different other thing. But, you know, I, my perception is that that risk is one that is overstated by most early stage VCs. And so it's one where, you know, if you're paying me to take it in terms of a lower valuation, I'm, I'm happy to take that bet. That makes sense. And I guess on that note, where do you stand on the whole debate of, you know, people versus market versus actual idea? Yeah, it's very hard to untangle them from each other. You know, the, the founder who goes into a bad market with a bad idea is probably not a great founder. You know, like the things that, you know, whatever criteria, whatever innate personality traits that would make a good founder um, probably don't show up in someone who looks at a market that's like squeezing blood from a stone and goes, yeah, this is the market I'm going to be in. Like that's, that's probably just not a good decision-making framework overall. They're really, really intertwined. I would say there's some markets where you kind of have the wind at your back more than others, you know, and, and of course, like ideas change, but you know, idea is a reflection of the founder and so is market. So I don't know if there's any one I could sort of look at um, individually. I'll say the least thing is, is the founder only in the sense that like, look, there's some baseline criteria of like, do I think I can work with this person or not? Do I think this person is smart? Do I think they can learn fast enough? But there are lots of really smart founders who didn't make it. There are lots of co-founders of companies who go on to start their own thing one day and don't make it. So the idea that any one particular founder is a sure bet is, is something I'm not sure that I really believe in. And, I, and I, I hear the term great team being thrown around. And it, to me, it gets thrown around around a lot of criteria that I, I can't say is predictive. Like, are they a great team because they're a bunch of Harvard MBAs? Well, there are plenty of Harvard MBAs who have failed at their startup. I mean, there's some teams that are so good that, you know, you can imagine that even if the thing completely hit the wall, you could probably get your money back uh, by because somebody would just buy the team. But we're, we're, not, we're not here to just get our money back. We're here to do a lot more than that. So I, I think the whole great team term is certainly over applied. So would you say that you do, I don't want to say less, but a different version of diligence from maybe other firms that? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, for sure, I do less diligence. I'm more, I'm happy to say that because um, at some point you're just creating work for yourself. You've got a team of physicists who've built a SAS tool for radiology labs uh, or oncology labs rather and 50 of them have signed up. You really think you're going to get something in three reference calls that, that are really going to point out the difference between, you know, a $500 million company and a zero? I mean, they, these are customers who don't buy things easily. This is a team who was the client, basically. They sat on the other side of the table. If you're sitting across from this team thinking, this is a really smart bunch of folks and they had this problem personally. I don't think I've ever been on a reference call with a customer, for example, that was like, wow, even though this customer is buying this product, there's something about this that makes me not want to do this deal. You know, I, I think there might be things you can learn to say, well, what would make them spend 10x on this product and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I, I think a lot of these companies are so early stage that you're really betting on 
the team's insight into this particular problem as evidenced by whatever early customers they have. You know, I hear that. And I actually like the school of thought that, you know, really by the time you're getting into diligence with a deal, you, you know that you love the deal. Now you're looking to just right. sort of convince yourself and everybody else that you've done the work, but you had the conviction in the beginning. And Well, yeah, and, and that it is also a function of like, I'm, I'm not to say I'm right on everything, but at this point, I've now been in the asset class. This February will be 20 years. Like what, what more information? And I'm somebody who like keeps a pretty diverse network, uh, has, is very curious, like is always sort of thinking about random stuff. You know, I go into a meeting 80% of the way there having, you know, some school of thought about, you know, whether selling to governments is hard or whether consumers are willing to pay for X, Y, and Z. And, you know, cause I'm, I'm in market. And this is the thing I think that's really hard with angels is that, you know, when you're selling real estate 10 hours a day and somebody comes along and says, Hey, here's, here's a dating app. And you, you know, you've been married for 15 years. It's very hard, you know, from scratch being like, Oh, what's, what's my opinion about what's sort of going on in that space and recreate that due diligence from scratch An in market early stage investor who's sort of curious and seen a few cycles is always going to have an advantage there. Absolutely. So how did you decide to build your own firm with Broken Bridge Ventures? What's the process been like? Well, I think that decision was sort of made for me because I'm a pretty miserable teammate. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't know if anybody would really put up with working with me. So it was very nice of both the, the team at Union Square Ventures and First Round Capital to do that. But All kidding aside, I I like kind of living and dying by my own sword. And, you know, it's it's funny. I just just got off the phone with with my dad and we're sort of dealing with, you know, what's winter going to look like? How are we going to manage visits and cold weather and all that sort of stuff? And I called him up and I told him I bought a heater from the backyard and I bought some lights and I'm coming over and I'm putting the stuff up. And, you know, he goes into this whole thing what kind of lights, where's the heater going to be, who's going to set it, all this sort of stuff. I was like, listen, I have this idea. You just got to let me go with it. I just want him to give me a shot, which is kind of why I didn't really ask him. I told him I bought the heater and I told him I'm coming over with it. Right. And so that's a personality that does like, doesn't really work in a consensus firm. And so, you know, after I left first round, I just realized that like, I'm not going to find somebody that I'm always going to agree with. And I don't necessarily think the firm is better for that. Plus the economics of a small fund are such that like the more money you raise, the more you need to return. You're splitting the economics with somebody. So you really need to raise 2x. So you don't really get economies of scale. And so, you know, the solo decision, you know, that there's sort of a, a, a personality fit for me. I've been around the table. I've, I've seen partner meetings work. I've evaluated firms. So, you know, I kind of have a decision-making framework and, and that's what kind of, you know, led me to uh, going out on my own. Sure. I feel like you shouldn't have even told your dad about the lights. You should have just showed up at his house and, you know, just done it. So I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners would probably be curious to learn more about your actual investment process. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, everybody runs their sort of deal flow process different. Some people are more thesis driven where they say, okay, you know, uh, security software, I'm going to go do a deep dive and I'm going to go look in some areas. I'm going to put out a thesis. I'm going to sort of see what comes back from it. Um, Me, I'm just trying to be top of mind on that list of like who to pitch. You know, if you're thinking about New York area investors for your New York company, you're looking for somebody who leads or co-leads, who's going to, you know, get that round kind of kicked off. 
and somebody who can sort of make a quick decision. You know, there's not too many people on that list. And so I'm trying to always stay top of mind for that kind of thing. So, you know, stuff comes in by email most of the time. Weirdly, since the pandemic, a lot of Twitter direct messages. Like, I, I don't know why, for some reason, like 2019, uh, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, became the the year of the dm pitches so i I get more of those than i than i ever did before maybe it's because i'm sort of very publicly out there about being willing to accept a cold pitch and and all of that sort of stuff you know so I, i i like to go over a deck i you know sort of read up on it and then i'll take a meeting and i probably take about 150 first-time pitch meetings out of the 2000 things that i see i i have kind of a high bar for taking a meeting so sometimes it's frustrating for founders because, you know, I go back and forth, I'll ask some questions and they're like, well, I'd just love to explain it to you. And it's like, ah, I'm not really willing to commit 45 minutes to this. I'd rather commit the five to sort of get your answer. But I do think I'm saving founders time that way. I'm not going to jump in unless, you know, I think I could possibly get there on, you know, kind of a deal like this. And then I would say about uh, 20% of those make it to the next step. So, you know, four out of five times, I'm basically telling you right there in the meeting, I'm not going to get there on this. Um, I'm usually pretty quick to that. So most of the time the founder could have been something I invested in if they got the meeting, but somehow lost it in the meeting. You know, just the other day, I, I got a pitch from somebody who, regardless of what I think of the company, and I actually think that probably venture is not the right structure of the company, that ultimately the CEO is not on it full time. Uh, it's sort of an incubated company spinning out of another company and the CEO is holding on to his position at the other company. And that's just not going to work for me. It's not going to work for the employees of the company. It's not going to work for the most senior person who's doing the most work there. So I just went back to him. I was like, I, I need to know that the founder is the CEO and, and they're going to work on it full time. And hey, if you want to sort of keep your foot on two things at once, you want to be the president of this company and have a little chunk of equity, like that's fine. But I want to report, you know, there's one person the buck needs to stop at and that person's got to be there full time. So that's, that's kind of a quick no. And then, you know, I try and get to a term sheet right away. Uh, and term sheets and dynamics are interesting because for me, I don't write a very large check. I mean, I'm sort of at the 250 to 350 kind of level. And I do what I call the flypaper term sheet. And what I mean by that is a lot of times you have a lot of people who are kind of hanging around the rim, like not quite making a decision, trying to figure out if there's heat on the deal. I'll just toss in a term sheet. Here's some terms I think are fair. You want to take them, great. And once you take them, send them around to everybody else. That is the point in which they could say yes or no. Um, there's plenty of room left in the deal for anybody else to participate. And it usually catalyzes the round and makes the whole thing go faster. Now, some people think the, the lead should be a deep pocket. They should write the biggest check. I just want to think that as long as that person is doing work and the round gets closed, I mean, one, if you're really worried about a deep pocket, you're basically planning for failure or planning for mediocrity. You either have accomplished something by the time you need money again, or you haven't. And if you haven't, nothing good's going to come out of it anyway. And I don't think you can necessarily guarantee that your deep pocket is going to put that much in anyway. If you have, there's going to be plenty of suitors around the table. There's lots of people who won't take the kind of risk that I take early on. 
but would take after you got a couple of clients or some growing revenues or, you know, nice usage or whatever. And then, you know, I do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of trying to uh, help finish off the round and introduce it to a lot of people because, you know, I don't like stuff hanging around in my inbox for, for longer than it needs to. That's great. And I love that collaborative kind of focus there, helping them to, to fill the round with other investors as well. You know, you mentioned founders that are pitching you and you know that you're not going to get there and kind of just ending the meeting, you know, instead of taking the 45 minutes or instead of even taking the meeting in the first place, because you know, you won't get there. And I, I respect that a lot. You're obviously you need to manage your own time. You're also saving them time. One thing that I've noticed kind of working in this space, which I'm, is everybody thinks it's so glamorous to be a VC and many parts are really, really cool and really exciting. It absolutely sucks to have to say no to founders. Like it's, in my opinion, hands down the worst part of the job. I hate it every single time. And even even worse than that is when I tell a founder no, politely, kindly, and they just fight back. And it's like, oh, I'm trying to give you a response. I'm trying to be helpful. You know, it's funny. There's a great Larry David and Seth Meyers clip where Larry David makes a guest appearance on Late Night. And he just brings Larry David around to basically be like the office honesty guy. A writer comes in and pitches Seth an idea. And Larry's just standing there and he's like, come on, is this, is this, really, this is really your best work here? You know, like... <laughs> He said, well, I don't know. Seth said he thought it was interesting that he was going to consider it. He's like, he's, he's not going to consider it. Like, what? what? No, he's, it's, it's not a good idea. Like, this, come, come back with something, something better. And, and Seth turns to him and says, that just came so easily to you. Uh, isn't, isn't that hard? And, and Larry Day's like, no, no, it's, it's really not that hard. Like, like, you can't, to me, I think the, the worst thing you can do for a founder is, is to pity them. I think the best thing you can do for them is to ask them challenging questions and hold them to a high standard, right? Like, you're telling them no, and that, that is not to say that you can't also at the same time be empathetic to the emotional difficulty of the process. That is two separate things. I've been there as a founder, like to be stuck in something that's not going anywhere, sort of the worst year or so of my career. It's not something you really wish on anybody. So if you really respect the person across the table from them, they're coming in, they're saying, you know, hey, would you want to invest in this? Telling them no and telling them quickly, and look, you might be wrong, but I think that's the best thing you can do for them. For sure. And then by the way, you also mentioned Twitter and how you're getting DMs with pitches. And I've, I've noticed the same thing. I'm a lot newer to Twitter than you are. You're a Twitter legend. I think you have like 40,000 followers. Any advice for me, but for anybody who's looking to ramp up their brand, their presence on Twitter and social media? Yeah, well, I mean, look, in the grand scheme of things, right? Like 40,000 is more than 400, but it's way less than, uh, you know, any of the Kardashians. So there's kind of a, a logarithmic line there. I, I think the thing with Twitter, there's two sides to it, right? There's consumption and creation. And so for me, I have to constantly remind myself myself that I would like to be engaging on Twitter. It's not a natural inclination for me to go there and sort of create a conversation. I always want to be better at doing that, and I probably don't do a good enough job. I, I think on the consumption side, the mute button and the mute phrases feature can be your friend. There's no reason, regardless of what side of the aisle you stand on, that Ben Shapiro needs to ever come across your feed for any reason whatsoever. It's not gonna make your day better. There's a lot of things where, you know, the system creates 
an emotional reaction that is not productive from a business perspective. You know, you got to be careful of those rabbit holes. You got to be really intentional about who you follow. And the other thing I would say too is that I've done, I really very intentionally tried to diversify who I follow. You know, if I get followed by a black female founder or, you know, a transgender software developer or just anybody who isn't me, who isn't the generic straight white dude in New York, I'm going to follow that person back. I'm going to poke around to see who they follow. You know, I, I stumbled across a sort of Twitter group that was Blacks in AI, a whole slew of people who are focused on how algorithms reflect those who program them and, and just a whole bunch of conversations that I am better for following. And I, you know, that's something I is really, really important to me. And I think it makes me a better thinker, a better person and a better investor for sort of intentionally trying to diversify that field and also not worried about follow the same people. I think in venture, a lot of times there's this, you know, there's some clubhouse room with Mark Andreessen and somebody else, you know, look, Mark's a really smart, successful guy, but like if your portfolio company needs a head of marketing, you know, you need to go help them. You can't spend all your time following the thing things that you feel like you should be following because you've got other work to do and, and you have to sort of make some choices on your time. Totally. I'm really glad that you brought that up about diversity. You clearly have been a leader. You wrote a blog post in 2019 called Lessons from a Diverse Venture Capital Portfolio. All kinds of amazing statistics about the diversity among your founders. And I know that you've led many other diversity-focused initiatives to help underrepresented people to, to get into startups and, and, and maybe venture capital. Anything you can share with us about diversity and really how people can improve opportunities for everybody? Yeah, I, I think really my focus is on accessibility across the board. I am trying to be the most accessible VC in New York. If you're going to do that, you really need to sort of think about taking down systematic barriers that frankly like don't increase the quality of your deal flow. By saying you only want warm intros, I really actually don't think you get better quality deal flow. Why? Because the people doing the introing are not VCs necessarily. If anybody could just do this, then what's the point of being an expert? You know, just because some PR person I know introduces me to their friend, like, what have I learned? Okay, well, you know, maybe the person's not a serial killer, but other than that, I don't really know that much. But what that particular barrier does do, because everybody's network kind of looks like themselves, is that it makes your network uh, and your deal flow less diverse. Right? So it's, it's, it's less about like I'm aiming for diversity than I'm taking away a filter that makes my deal flow less diverse and not better. So like, why would I want that? I mean, yes, I, I like diversity in my friend group. I think that makes my life more interesting. But in my portfolio, I'm just trying to make money. I'm just trying to make money for my LPs. I, I think the other thing is, you know, for example, like in the meeting, right? Just being cognizant of how, you know, different groups of people pitch the reality of the straight white guy in American society is that we largely work relative to others in a consequence-free world. So we're not afraid to say we're gonna do $100 million of revenue in six years. Now I'm, I'm grossly generalizing, of course, but 
you know, I think a lot of other groups, in my experience, are more likely to put what they think will happen than what could happen. So you wind up with two founders who otherwise have similar companies on similar trajectories. And one is willing to say it's going to be $100 million in seven years. And one tells you it's going to be $50 million in seven years. And the reality is the most likely thing is that they both are zeros. Just because someone's willing to say stuff and make predictions doesn't necessarily make them a better founder. doesn't make the company any different. I think what comes off as sort of like a diversity slant, you know, in some ways is like just a New York bullshit filter. Hey, you don't know that this is going to be a hundred million dollars. And oh, by the way, you don't know that this isn't going to be a hundred million dollars. You know, some people are more comfortable saying they're going to change the world. Other people want to change the world and then tell you about it. I really like that insight. So this is a New York podcast, obviously. And I mean, you're truly a New York VC. You grew up in New York City. I think I read in one of your blog posts that you've never been outside the five boroughs for more than like two weeks. It's three, it's three whole weeks. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Michigan, totally different, totally different background. I can't even imagine that. So what can you tell us about the startup and venture ecosystem, specifically here in New York, maybe versus Silicon Valley, other ecosystems and Kind of what trends do you predict over the next few years? I think there's uh, the city's economy is very closely tied to the venture economy here. New York City is a great place to build a company because it's a great place to live. And I think that's really the sort of key driver, not to mention, you know, that it has historically attracted the most ambitious people and, you know, just really smart people from all over the world and a, from a diverse background and, and all of that sort of stuff. You know, embedded in that is the ability to connect with people in person in your geographic area. And the pandemic has made that very difficult, obviously. And so, you know, you've got some people who have made the personal decision to say, you know what, it doesn't make sense to pay my Tribeca rent because I'm not going to any restaurants. I'm not seeing my friends. I'm not going to the office. So I might as well have more space. So you look, that's a very near-term reality. I know a lot of people who have let their leases expire, but fully intend on moving back, you know, when it is safe to go back to an office and go eat dinner indoors and all of this other stuff. I am optimistic about the idea of moving to New York and living in New York will be like come, you know, summer, fall of, of next year. The reality, however, is that there are a lot of smaller businesses that are hurting. There are a lot of restaurants that might not make it until then. You know, retail in general is kind of a tough business. I, I think some creative solutions are going to need to be had to make sure that enough of what people think of as New York survives until that period of time. And I, I think the city is very resilient, but you know, there's a lot of people who are hurting and look, I, I think our government, and that is all across the board, from the very top all the way down to the local level, has really done an absolutely terrible job supporting the local small business. You know, outside of letting people put tables in the streets, there's been very little to protect the people who make up the sidewalk life of New York City. And I, I, I think that's a real problem in the short to medium term, but I'm, I'm longer term bullish on the time it takes to build a company here in New York. Well said. I, I agree with you. So am I for the long term. Any pet peeves you have about venture capital in general? Yeah, other VCs. 
They don't respect founders' time. They're more indecisive than they should be for people who are supposed to make decisions for a living. Some of the best VCs out there, pick a founder, continue to support that founder. People like Union Square Ventures, who continued to back companies like Twitter and Tumblr and for a long time before those companies, you know, made money and sort of righted the ship. And, and then, you know, some of the worst VCs are ones where, you know, at the slightest bit of trouble, even though they have a big fund, they're gone. And I've just seen too often uh, people pulling the plug pretty early at the first side of trouble. Last question, Charlie. Any general advice you have for founders? I think founders underestimate the amount of homework that it takes to start a company and how knowledgeable about a space you should be. Too many times I ask, you know, hey, this other company with a very similar business model, how much money are they making a year? Oh, I couldn't find it. Well, were you just Googling around or did you reach out on LinkedIn to their former head of sales who just left last year, who you know might be able to give you a ballpark answer to that? Because maybe that business is not as good as you think it is. The other thing I would say is, you know, especially around raise, keep in mind what we do for a living. We're trying to make money. Too many times somebody comes and says, look, I built a widget. All right, well, I, do you think you can make money? I don't know, you've been thinking about that for longer than I have. How much money do you think it could make? Who wants to buy such a thing? Like, don't make me guess the future. You come up with the best version of the future you think is possible. I think that's that's really, really great advice. Anyway, Charlie, many, many thanks for making time and sharing your incredible insights with our audience today. It's truly an honor to do this chat today. Thank you. Cool, it was fun. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, that was Charlie O'Donnell, the founding partner at Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. A true New Yorker, a true New York VC. I had a lot of fun with this one, hearing his unique perspectives on a variety of topics. You should follow him on Twitter at CEONYC. Those are his initials. And Charlie, once again, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks again for listening to The New York Startup. I'm Zach Firestone. You can always find us at thenewyorkstartup.com and follow us on Twitter at TheNYStartup. Make sure to subscribe to the show. Looking forward to catching you on the next episode.